Hello and welcome to another podcast episode of Do You Know What? I'm Rabbi Charlie Beginsky, the CEO of Liberal Judaism, and it is a pleasure to be joined in the virtual studio with my friends and fellow presenters, Leo and Rebecca. Leo, how's your week been? been a fairly quiet week. And Rebecca, has yours been quiet? No, not really. I've been working on dual projects this week to do with um, various videos for various services for Kingston Liberal Synagogue. So we had our two Bishvat service on Friday, but I was putting together a video uh, to accompany our choir recording for that and also we had our holocaust memorial day uh, ceremony this afternoon as well which i'd also prepared a video for so lots of kind of video production that makes me sound uh, much more clever than i actually am to be honest i just use iMovie and make it up as i go along oh, well i have to say as someone who follows you on uh, twitter and facebook it definitely looks impressive in the uh, end result <laughs> then i'm doing any a good job with my bluffing out there to get on uh, Rebecca's uh, Kingston Liberal Synagogue and, and check out the work they've been doing. But you mentioned there, uh, Rebecca, Tubishvat, which for us, you know, slips off the tongue. But um, there might be people listening that have no idea what Tubishvat is. Uh, what's Tubishvat? It's, it's Hug a Tree Day. The rabbis will give some long, convoluted explanation about Tubishvat, whereas. You know, you'll get to the point. Is, is it the new year for the trees or the birthday of the trees? Because you hear different things depending on who you talk to. But as I was saying to Sean just before we got on here, actually, in the Jewish religion, we do have at least one festival a month. Um, and January's festival is Tubishvat, where we celebrate the trees and fruit and drink wine. I mean, what's not to like? And funnily enough, in there, Rebecca, you kind of slipped in the name of our guest who is with us today. Like a secret door behind it um, is uh, Sean Berry. Uh, Sean and I were recently uh, did a session on Limud together and uh, Sean Berry off the cuff said to me, oh, I'm sure we'll do something again together in the future. And sure enough, second we were off the off the limit call. I signed her up for our podcast, but it's great timing, Sean, that you're here on this new year of trees on Tubishvat, the week that's just passed. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And thank you for having me on. Uh, it's really nice to be here. Just in case, and I'm sure there aren't many people listening to this who don't know you, but maybe you could give us a quick introduction to uh, to who you are, where you've come from, where you are today. Sure, I'm. So my name's Sean Berry, and I am. Um, I mainly do politics these days. I used to do lots of other things, um, but I'm a, I'm a local councillor in the borough of Camden um, in London, and I'm a London Assembly member as well, where I'm elected to represent all of London on the PR bit of the election there. Um, and I'm the co-leader of the Green Party nationally with my colleague Jonathan Bartley. And I'm standing to be mayor of London. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about green politics right now. And I'm currently in my flat in Cal- And can you just say a little bit about, you said, oh, you, you mainly do politics now. What else have you done, Sean? Because I'm always interested in how people get to politics. So tell us a little bit more, fill in some of the gaps. <laughs> it was a long and winding road for me to get into politics, quite honestly. I was, I was, um, I'm from Gloucestershire originally. And I moved, I went to university at Oxford and did science, I did metallurgy, and then I came to London. So I've moved like eastwards across the country through my life. I've had about 30 different jobs. I've done an awful lot of work in like offices. I used to work for a taxi company. I worked in insurance for quite a while um, in various different places. I worked for pension 
firms and I worked in medical marketing, which is very, very interesting with all the talk there is about big pharmaceutical companies. I used to work for big pharmaceutical companies in marketing. But eventually I decided I wanted to I decided what I wanted to do with my life when I was in my 20s and I started to work for more like charities and um, eventually worked as a road campaigner for quite a long time. So that was my route. And I only gave up being a road campaigner in 2016 when I got elected to the London Assembly. So that's when I became a full-time politician. But I've done an awful lot of other jobs. I've worked in a lot of places. If you go around London with me, which not that no one's allowed to do anymore, um, virtually every tube station you come out of, I'm like, oh, I used to work around. Because <laughs> I, I worked, when I decided to become ethical, I worked for a temp agency for a long time. So I was doing jobs for like three months in a lawyer's office and three months for a volunteering charity and like a year for a I worked for a year for a really posh charity that was really good fun um and then yeah so I'm just everywhere I've been everywhere I'm really interested but you just said it kind of throwaway comment which was when I decided to become ethical well you know how you have like a quarter life crisis in your 20s and you've you know you've left university and you're trying to make your way in the world and you just you start to examine your purpose which I did and um yeah decided that a more ethical life that was more examined was the thing to be doing so that's when I stopped working for like big companies and and really just went and tried to find my way to something that I felt was a bit more like on, on my wavelength and uh, the environment came into that as well and I joined the greens around the same time as I started changing my my work and it kind of all went from there. It's amazing because I know from our previous conversations that you're a humanist but the way that you I talk am. about becoming ethical sounds quite religious. It, it sounds well, like a calling. Yeah, I mean, no, no obviously, because I'm a humanist. But that's what religions ask you to do as well, isn't it? It asks that religions ask you to examine your ethics, to examine your life, to, to be thoughtful, to consider others. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I didn't spontaneously decide to do that. I was brought up a Christian. It was one of those things that I, you know, I do have. A basis of ethics but also I went and I went and literally read philosophy and ethics and worked out what I thought that was that was what I did which I think you know that's part of that study is, is part of being religious and a lot of religions it just doesn't have the the entirely spiritual side to it but I'm going to be talking to the humanists in a couple of weeks and there is there is a spiritual side to being a humanist too if you if you genuinely believe that you 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 don't have um a a divine being directing things then then you believe that you came spontaneously the human race came spontaneously out of the natural world and so you feel very connected to the natural world and and that is there's something spiritual about that the sort of the heritage of your dna and the evolution and all of that isn't there something there about um religious communities as well because i'm just saying this having come from a this afternoon having having had a sort of interfaith service to mark holocaust memorial day in my local area in kingston um and there were members obviously for the jewish community and the christian community and the muslim community and so on and so forth but also a representative of the humanist society but again what we had in common was we were all from different communities obviously we all had very different beliefs and you know some of those obviously there was this sense of a divine presence but it's a sense of being part of a community and therefore all of the kind of the sharing and the mutual support that goes on within that which I you you, you don't need to have a kind of belief in a divine presence in order to, to have that I guess. No exactly and it's a it's a commitment to 
um, a common program of work together in the community, an ethical framework. There's there's an awful lot that humanism has in common with, with religions. The, the humanists provide celebrants like for times when you want to mark changes in your life as well, um, for people who don't want to, to follow a, a religious ceremony. But these kinds of ceremonies are important and you need to have somebody to officiate. So we'd, yeah, the humanists provide those too. I always find that some religions try and use the blame of the religion itself to walk away from the issue of ethics. When for me personally, I think ethics is the absolutely fundamental belief that people should deal with. And then it's how do you present it? I just find it really against certain religions when they sort of say we've done this in the name of x we've done this in the name of y and they've walked away from the issue of ethics when i think that ethics should be at the center of the thing first you're meeting many many different faiths and you've talked about humanists and you've talked about that how does your ethics sit there with most of the people that you talk to i do see a lot of um, people from different religions and you know i think there's an awful lot that's in common there mostly the context in which i see them really matters actually i mean I saw a lot of people um, from from Muslim organisations, for example, after Grenfell, who had piled down there with food and um, ways of, you know, just the, the, the whole the whole principle of, of hospitality and food that comes with um, being a Muslim. And then, obviously, there were there was a Muslim organisation based very very close to the tower that became a centre for people to come, um, a Muslim community centre. And so, th- those are the contexts in which I see people where people are practicing the ethical part of their religions by and large. I don't normally have philosophical discussions with people. <laughs> it's usually in the context of um, some kind of political or, or you know, an emergency sort of. Um, humanitarian type situation quite honestly so taking that forward I mean this is also quite an important week we mentioned about Tupish Fart but it's actually also Holocaust Memorial Week mm. there's been a number of different programs that have been put on by different people and it's been on the national newspapers it is just unbelievable when you look at the stories of some of the people and they just don't treat each other they don't treat anything nicely in judaism at the moment it's ingrained it's part of our dna um fortunately or unfortunately uh the stories of the holocaust but what i've seen this year and this year more than i've seen in any other year is the fact that people are realizing this isn't just a one-off issue this isn't just a one dimension and it isn't um, something that is related when you then compare it to the other issues of people versus people in this world uh, so black lives matter and everything else you see it repeated it's just uh, the one area do you see that when you're going out and you mentioned about the muslims in grenfell do you see that when you're going around i think you're talking about the the early stages of fascism and and persecution that that i think you're right jewish people are um attuned to much more than than the rest of us um although at school we we learned we had brilliant education at school about the holocaust because we didn't um we didn't learn about the the war as in the battles and the fights and that we, we did the lead up to the war and what led to what happened and then we did the aftermath of the war and I think that was the best education that you can possibly have and I think we are seeing so many of these early signs of totalitarianism of fascism the demonization of different groups around the the, the country around the world at the moment and the, the sort of creeping authoritarianism some of the some of the propaganda warnings that you get, some of the the lies and the and the tropes that come out around Jewish people, we're seeing much more of that, but also being used 
to, to demonize other groups as well. And I think all of that should be a, a serious warning to us at the moment, looking at America, looking at how close they came to really succumbing to that propaganda war of, of lies, of accepting that you know, the bigger the lie, the more the more likely you are to, to, to have it accepted. That kind of principle was starting to win over and then they've pulled themselves back from it just, just, I think. I think those things are such live issues. They're always live issues. And I think one of the things about Holocaust Memorial Day um, is that you look at not only what happened in the Second World War, but also the subsequent genocides there have been and the commonalities between them. And every time I see... Um, the testimonies from from survivors of genocides. What they have in common is often that their friends and family, people they were formerly colleagues with, turning on them all of a sudden in response to a call. But and the fact that they could see the signs coming before that that happened, but nobody thought that was going to happen until it did. And those those kinds of lessons we we have to learn, we have to think about, we have to spot them in our in our current society. I don't know if any of you saw the article by Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian um, this week, because, Leah, you're right. I mean, I, I think that's what he's beginning to pick apart, which is we have very short memories, not just as a nation, as humanity. The whole expression of there's nothing new under the sun, and Sean alluded to it with the reference to other genocides that are remembered at Holocaust Memorial Day, is we say never again, and yet again... And um, this sense of, in the current time, particularly in COVID times, what do we do? And we, we began to touch on it last week with Josh about this idea of memory and what does Biden do in the States in terms of memory? And what do we do with memory of Holocaust Memorial Day? But also what do we do in the present moment in, in COVID times of what will we hold on to of this moment? Jonathan Friedland talks about the Spanish flu. How do we ensure that actually just like that was kind of forgotten that we don't in 20 years time, this is a moment that's passed and we've learnt nothing. That, Charlie, is exactly the issue. The minute there's nobody alive who was there, the memory of it, even though it's written down in the books, it's there, it repeats. We repeat and we repeat and we repeat. And it isn't just about these sort of things. Um, I'm looking at the way that we don't look at things coming up ahead of us. Environmental issues at the moment, there is no denying it's there except for there are people who are sitting there like walking into this with their eyes closed going, well, it will just, it will just disappear. Sean, this is obviously something that, you know, is a big area in your life. Why do we walk into this thing? Why are we walking into this with our eyes closed? As a environmentalist, I really struggle with this sort of sense of how much do you stress the urgency of this and how much do you, you know, how much resistance will there be? If you say how serious the, the climate crisis is if you're genuinely honest about that people flinch and turn away and don't want to hear it um, and and there have been up until very recently very powerful forces even trying to deny the science of climate change I think we're winning that war but I still think the question of it being so urgent people do push back still whenever there's any sort of genuine change we ask for any sort of genuine transformation and to me all these transformations are incredibly positive and we should be doing them anyway there's the famous um cartoon that caroline lucas puts around every five minutes that's that's got um a sign at a big climate conference and it's and it says things like healthy streets clean air equality you know protecting the 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 natural world and it's like well oh no what if we did that and it was all a big hoax um you know we we create a better world and there's and there's no real reason for it because climate change 
isn't real. Climate change is real and climate change is that urgent. And yet people are still saying, let's not make these changes that I want to see anywhere. You've gone into politics. So you've gone in on the kind of big level, right? But also from the small conversations we've had, I know you're also concerned with the small things. So it's not Mm. just as nations that we forget. It's also as individuals. It's when we it's too much effort to sort the recycling out, right? As opposed to, but you've made a, a conscious decision to take on the big structural issue. Was that intentioned in the same way as, you know, this call to ethics? Was it intentioned that actually your fight was with, with the institutions, with changing the structures of society? Yes, exactly that, basically. I mean, I, I try and act at all levels. Like I said at the beginning, I'm a councillor and I'm a London Assembly member and I'm, I'm co leader So at the big level, I really want the country to take this on board and make this the mission for the country in the very urgent way I was just talking about but also uh, you know at a, at a local level all the changes you can make to, to how your streets work whether you have enough trees and you know if you have trees whether there are enough trees in your area are you protecting the the pollution in the air the water all of those things are things that you can work on at a really local level it's so positive it's so community building it often saves money it often protects um the, the 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 most vulnerable in society when you're doing these things as well like all of these things are well well worth doing and and if and if you've got an ethical framework they fit into that very nicely as well there was something on radio 4 this morning that said the biggest change that you can make to the environment is to engage in the conversation about where you invest your pension yeah no honestly uh, faith groups are very are really good on on investment type stuff as well because i mean i don't I, the church of england has an enormous amount of, of land and um assets and, and them starting to divest has really sort of kicked things off i think um and i think there's there's definitely something to be said about um where you put your money and quite often religions have kind of rules about that you know as well that that you can you can work into the to the campaigns i I love the divestment campaigns. They bring everybody together, workers and yeah, churches and, and uh, ordinary people. And, and it's, uh, yeah, it's great. Councils, we can do loads at a council level. For me, the involvement with people outside of the stuff that I do in the Jewish religion, I used to be a scout leader. I was involved heavily in that side. And it was all about taking young people on a journey and saying, this environment that you're in isn't here just because it happens to be here. I'm actually a firm believer that environments change. I'm not one of these people that says we want to keep something to look exactly as it is because you can't. People don't. Animals don't. Things change. But you also want to say, let it change in a way that is proactive and make it change in a way that's proactive. So we would spend a lot of time with young people sort of saying to them, this is the this is the world you're living in and you need to look after it. Um, there's always that excuse it's like oh well our grandparents destroyed it or this and the other but it's like they will be grandparents eventually so it's like work out how to do it that's why I think for me liberal Judaism which uh, myself Charlie and Rebecca are involved in has those ethics at its core and and that's where everything you're saying Sean you should become a member (laughs) (laughs) we don't proselytize do we but not yet don't we as humans have a kind of instinctive um tendency to deny when things are happening that we don't want to happen and i'm thinking about that in terms of the levels we've lots of different things that we've talked about today so covid 
you know, right at the beginning and, you know, literally 12 months ago when we were just hearing these stories of something going on in China. I don't know about you guys, but I was like, oh, that will never happen here. It won't come here. It will just all die out. It'll be like SARS and da, 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 da. And, you know, just just didn't really accept that it was actually going to happen. And and I think our government also had a big problem with that as well, because, you know, there's all, you know, they, they probably acted late. But I think also there was an element of that. I think there's an element of that maybe less so now, but certainly over the last sort of 10 years about the environmental issues, people don't always want to accept and see that that's happening. And again, linking that back to the other thing we've talked about today, the Holocaust. I mean, I remember the film The Pianist, you know, the very powerful film with Maureen Lippmann and um, Adrian Brody, I think, you know, and very, I thought that portrayed so well the very, very early days when, you know, there were a nice middle class family living in Krakow or Warsaw. And they were in denial. This isn't going to happen. Oh, don't be ridiculous. You know, we're comfortable here. And you could really feel that. And people, I think, you know, the tendency is people don't want to see what is happening until they really cannot deny it anymore. That, I think that's a very human thing. It's not It's not good or bad. It's just a very human thing. But then again, taking it back to what you're saying, Sean, about the local action, again, thinking about it in the COVID context, one of the many positive things that has come out of the last year, aside all of the, you know, horrible stuff is the local communities that have really kind of you know got together and helped each other and we've seen stories like that all over the country and all over the world frankly you know so when you do are when you are faced with that realization that there's something happening and that you get over the denial is the next human stage to then kind of rally around in your immediate families and communities on a local level and is that really where the answer is rather than the bigger kind of political scope where you've got all of the games to play Sean you're in both both worlds so you'll be able to talk about that much more than us <laughs> people don't want to hear about warning signs and our risk management is shocking absolutely shocking and that's that's part of the problem um, when you see something like coronavirus coming at you or you see climate change coming at you you want to wait till it's absolutely certain before you take action and that isn't wise risk management what you should do is think about the likelihood of it coming and if the likelihood starts to become more and more and more because there are more and more warning signs you ought to be thinking about the, the mitigation of the risk and starting to do some of the things that make you more resilient um, and might protect you from that risk that are good to do Anyway, that's the whole point. That's what I'm saying. Like, if you, 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 it's risk management in a in a really pragmatic way. If we do this stuff, it'll help protect against this risk that may or may not happen. But it's worth doing these things anyway. It'll have some positive impacts. I think there's been an amazing humanitarian response when the risk did come. When we when we were faced with the flood, the virus suddenly really really taking off people mobilized so well in so many ways in in every type of community um and took action to to, to mitigate that actual harm that was happening on the ground but but for climate change we can't wait until the harm happens we actually do have to plan ahead at some point and that's that's what's quite scary um and then the other thing that that i would say about the you know the, the coming together in the communities we've seen throughout this crisis we've needed government to step in um, and repay the councils for the work that they were doing. Councils are still in debt because of mobilising to help people and the government needs to fill that in. People are still without incomes. The government is what is needed to fill that in. So we have to be acting at a government level as well. But we can show the way with our local actions for certain. I kind of want to tie it up together, but come back to what you said right at the beginning about uh, different ways of doing things and mitigating the the risk. And I wonder whether there's something in the way that the Greens lead. So I know you talked about being co-leaders of uh, the Green 
party and this sense of some sort of collaborative leadership, which in and of itself is a really different model and perhaps also mitigates risk as we move forward. There's a lot of reasons why I like being a co-leader. I mean, one of them is, you know, that I'm quite busy and it's good to share the job with somebody else. The other is because we don't like having that one big figurehead, that leadership model, that quite authoritarian, paternalistic leadership model isn't what we're about. And, And so we want to send that signal that we believe that collaboration is better just through that leadership model that we do but genuinely the green mod the green model of power is to make sure it's held at the right level okay so we're trying at liberal judaism this is really something we're talking about a lot about how do you not have one figurehead how do you have a multitude of voices that raise up different points of lead if you had to give us um some tips about how do you have a shared ethic but still hold a multitude of voices is there anything you any advice you'd give us okay i would say don't expect it to be simple and don't expect it to be neat part of the joy of distributed leadership and collaboration is that it's not always that neat and tidy it's not always unmessy but it's good mess it's good mess if people are able to debate things it's good mess if one council's doing one thing and another's doing another and it fits the different local areas properly this is this is a good thing Um, and I think people like to oversimplify they look for simple silver bullet solutions to things like climate change they just want one thing to be done and for it all to go away and I think again with coronavirus we've seen that we, we don't just need a vaccine. We need good test and trace. We need to be alert to the new strains. We need to be making sure that people are supported to be able to take, take time off work. There's a lot that needed to be done that was complicated and, and more of it should have been devolved to local areas and not done by one app to rule them all or one big investment here and there. This, this model is, is resilient in so many ways. Do you think from your perspective or from the Greens Party's perspective that there's been positives out of what's happened in the last year? I mean, it's really hard when there's 100,000 people who've died, who should not have died, who should still be with us. And what Charlie was saying earlier, that article about how we'll remember them, it's really tough. When, you, when, when he's giving that example about the Spanish flu, really, really tough to think that we've got to hold all the all the memories together and, and make sure we do commemorate and we do remember. That's really, really tough. But but yeah, we've seen some positive things, you know, some glimpses of a different world, some kind of conception of how quickly things can change when they have to for an awful reason. Gives us hope that we might be able to change things dramatically for a better reason, I think. Yeah. You talked earlier about the world what it was like when you used to get on tubes. And for me, I think I've been on the underground four times in the last year from somebody that was on it uh, at least twice, maybe four times a day. Do I miss it? No. Do I realise the amount of energy taken to drive me around the city, of which I've then been able to do all of these calls, all of my business remotely? Um, and it's a massive difference that uh, my last meeting before lockdown uh, was with a client who is based in Ireland who I would regularly see every three weeks one or the other of us would fly from Dublin to London and backwards all the time it hasn't affected the business the fact that they are now doing it all remotely you know surely I know as you say on a personal a personal level this last year for many many people has been horrific but from a bigger perspective and the opportunities that it's opened 
opened up or the flexibility it's given to people, there must be some positives that we take out of this crisis. Right. But Leo, that would be the massive question will be how long will it take before you and him are meeting again in person or won't it happen again? And I think that's for me also came across in the Friedland article was we have short memories. So initially, we think we won't go back, we will remember, we'll remember the impact, we'll remember the ease, we'll remember that we could do this. And then you do one visit. And then the next thing you know, it's every three weeks again. Or is this time different? I would suggest, and I'm sorry for Lee, I'm going to jump in and speak for you now. But I would suggest it's probably not going to be every three weeks, but maybe it will be every three months. So maybe they'll find the happy medium. Um, because I used to travel a lot for work and as, as well. I don't anymore because I teach piano. I don't need to travel at all. But I did used to have one of those jobs where I used to travel all the time. And I've spoken to people who are still in that similar sort of job and said, you know, will you go back to it? And they said, nowhere near to the extent that we were before. Nowhere near. But yes, they will do because there are some things where you still do much better if you are in the same room. It you know, this does not, this this screen time does not completely replace face-to-face contact in terms of relationship building and networking and all of the softer skills. But do you need to do that every three weeks? No, you know, so, so most of the people that I know that are still in that kind of corporate travel world are saying, you know, yeah, twice a year, we'll probably all get together for a big conference, but we won't go for all of the other meetings that would have been once a month or once every two or three weeks. You know, they will all go, they will all go online or stay online, but there still will be, you know, the special occasions where people will get together. And so I think it's that happy medium. I think, you know me, I, I love, love to be in the centre of all of these things, but I think it will go back, you know, and I think people will start going to the office again but not five days a week I think people will will work at home a lot more but again they will be going back to the offices because there are some things that are much better to do when you're all in the same place as you say you were electioneering you were traveling around London you're now not um when that cycle starts again or however that cycle starts do you think you're going to be doing a lot more of that electronically rather than door to door that's a really interesting question actually um and i think it's it's true isn't it you want some variety but but whether you need to do it all of the time is the question one thing i found is like one of the things i used to do as co-leader was go around the country visiting um you know local parties so i'd be going to you know wales and then the north and then the east and then the southwest and i'd be really traveling i'd be on trains an awful lot um and in lockdown obviously i haven't been able to do that but i have visited a lot of places via zoom and it's super easy like i visited two places in one night sometimes and that's so efficient i can't imagine we won't be doing quite a lot of that in the future um but then getting together is really important i think still think we'll have green party conferences in person if we have to and there's a big question about the cop meeting you know the where the the, the nations get together and 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 re um renegotiate the next step of the paris agreement and that goes on every year and it was due to be held here last year and it's been put off till the autumn um and the question is can we have it in the autumn still and if we can't can we have a conference like that in in not in person because when it comes to things like that the thing you said about networking and if you're negotiating a treaty the the kind of side rooms where you make those bilateral sort of personal connections by side rooms you mean the bars right yeah when you're trying to negotiate an international treaty amongst so many countries you do need to be able to 
to do it in a very delicate way and you can't delicately do things over zoom you just can't thing though that i was making maybe it's a silly example but i was thinking of the people that don't show up the people who aren't in the room so you know what we've seen with Zoom is that all those congregations spread across the country who couldn't turn up to meetings in person because it was too far are suddenly engaged in a really different level. And so our movement is changing because of the the engagement level of communities that could never access it before. Maybe that doesn't have a, happen on a nation. Maybe if you're involved in a nation uh, project, then you have to turn up. But I wonder whether actually there were countries who didn't show up and weren't involved because actually it was happening outside of their country and their priority was very internal. And actually with this new kind of all being able to be in the same room, not having to make the relationships in order to be in the back room to negotiate that delicate part of it, but actually being in one space and being on an equal footing in a in a different way maybe it will change the level of engagement internationally yeah i mean we, we've definitely noticed that that in debates there's a different balance that goes on where you have to make things more equal it makes the the space different but it's, it's differently accessible to different people so it's it's great if you um struggle to travel but if you've got digital access problems or you know you rely on more sort of physical presence for your accessibility um if you've got language problems it's not as easy to be on zoom so there's there's different different it does change the dynamic of debate though i've noticed that at our conferences for certain have you noticed is there a change in gender in terms of engagement so i wonder whether we were talking the other day about that equality is is not linear that actually we kind of think that we get to one space but you still have to keep working at it that even though we see a lot more leadership both in politics but also for us in the Jewish world you still have to keep going still have to make sure that the the equality is on the table I wonder whether there's any issues of um, gender equality and who gets to speak and all of that that changes with with Zoom. Yeah, it's hard. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know actually. I think I think I've seen the same kind of levels of. I've been to lots of meetings on Zoom where there's a lot of people and there's questions, and you've got the same problem of having to encourage women to put their questions into the chat. Um, we've got gender balancing rules in, in Green Party debates. So if, if there hasn't, you know, we, we keep a, a track and we 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 say, oh, I won't have any more men speaking until a woman has spoken. So we, that, that does happen, um, but, but I can't say that it's become any better or worse. My view is that it isn't about equality using Zoom um, because you can't really level anything out. What you do is you give different priorities. So people who have got better technology end up um, jump, leapfrogging people who don't. And I see this all the time. I see people with better microphone setups or better video setups are actually taking more involvement in a conversation because they can. And that to me, going back to what Charlie was asking is, is this the opportunity that certain countries or certain people who maybe didn't get a spotlight are going to get a spotlight? If we think back to like a national election a number of years ago, when the uh, Lib Dems suddenly got a spotlight that they'd never, ever had before because of a change in how things happened. And suddenly there was a three person race or a three party race that was literally off the cards nine months before. And they they were jettisoned into that because of the change in the rules and the change in the environment and maybe maybe that we're starting at a flat level and it's like guys you're all starting at zero let's see 
how you act in the new rules rather than in the old rules. I'd like to think it was a leveller, but remember, think back, we all did think the internet was going to level out access to politics and things, and it didn't take very long for that to become extremely monetized and extremely more biased towards the big parties once again, unfortunately. But I think, I think Leah makes a really interesting point, and it, it may not be a leveller, but it may be that the advantages are uh, spread around differently. Because what Leo is saying is it's the tech that becomes a distinguishing feature and the quality of the tech, rather than necessarily things like age, gender, race. Now, whether or not there's a correlation between age, gender and race and quality of the tech is probably another another matter. But it also comes down to what do we give people in order to lift up their voices? That's what comes across to me from what Leo said, which is mm. actually it it doesn't become about giving them a platform and a space to speak but it gives also means about providing them the tools to be able to do it so not only the training and how to present online which you know I've understood is invaluable this whole period but actually how important the camera is and um, we have a member of our board for example who is uh, responsible for inclusion but also um, speaks a lot about um, the access, the difference that it makes because of um, his own hearing and what a difference it makes not to put your hand up in front of your mouth, how you're excluding him from conversations and that your lighting when you speak gives him sudden access to a whole range of conversations that otherwise would be. And so that idea, I mean, Leo, I think it's a really powerful thing you've just talked about, actually, about the tools that we provide people with um, and not just the platform that we give them. I could give you another example of where I see this change, this shift. Myself, uh, Charlie and Rebecca are on Clubhouse, this new app, which is audio only. And you see on that platform a huge swing towards uh, black American voices on there. And I found it fascinating that I'm listening to conversations and listening to voices that in my world didn't get exposure. And we talked about this in our last episode, but what we didn't talk about is the fact that the technology is the enabler, that for some reason, the people who you never heard about, and Charlie mentioned about uh, some of the people we have in our own community, are suddenly propelled forward because they've adopted and they've grabbed the nettle of this technology and said, I'm going to be at the front of it and I'm not going to sit at the back of the bus. And I don't know if you're finding that, Sean, in the stuff that you're dealing with, that you're hearing different voices coming through the radio waves that you heard a year ago. I've been listening to a lot more podcasts lately and I think the diversity of voices you get in, I'm on a podcast today, um, I think the diversity of voices you get in podcasts and the different ways of finding people on podcasts is is really interesting because a lot of it's word of mouth and I think that's that's really, really good. But I'll I'll go back to my original point about, about the internet. I think when we first had Twitter, when we first had online discussion groups you know what was really dominating was people who were like disabled in lots of cases I spent I used to work this is when I was working in medicine and I used to spend time looking to find out the perspectives of people who had diabetes who I was working on drugs for and I found these online forums where people with diabetes were you know older people and and poor poorer people were, were, were discussing like how this is America again so I was like listening in on a lot of American diabetics respectively um, talking about how to get the best out of their HMOs and and what kinds of drugs and what kind but it was the point was they were they were really empowered they were making a community and it was great twitter when it first started out gave new voices new prominence but eventually the power underlying everything came 
took over and and part of it's to do with monetization and part of it's to do with the like underlying power structures in our society i think so yeah get in there early adopters and 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 make the most of it i say you mentioned there about listening to lots of podcasts and it's a kind of favorite point of discussion on this podcast leo particularly and rebecca listen to a lot of podcasts what are you listening to? So I've, I've been listening to the ones, the ones that I've been on, which have been absolutely fantastic. So <laughs> Sustainable-ish were really, really good. Um, and then um, a really nice fashion podcast, whose name I've forgotten. Think about podcasts, right? They all have these like clever names, which are like a little bit too clever <laughs> to remember. Yeah, they're always punning. And I'm like, so it's something like... <laughs> Sustainable-ish. I keep calling it. Yeah, but it, I keep I keep thinking it's called Sustainable for some reason. <laughs> That's a good name. Like a, I know it's like a different word. And then there's a there's a really good history podcast, which is just Tom Holland and his mate talking about history. But they, they it's really really nice. So I'm really enjoying that. My local paper does a really nice podcast. That's great. when do you listen to your podca- podcasts? In 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 the bar. And like when I'm sort of just when I'm when I'm not looking at a screen, basically, yeah. it's nice to just have something that's on the on in the sound. It's a funny thing you say. When do you listen? Because actually, I've actually listened less and less in the last couple of months, purely because I'm not doing activities that enable me to listen to podcasts it also affects the fact that uh, i can't listen to a podcast mowing the lawn because you can't really mow the lawn in the winter but it is something that i think you go through these cycles and i guess when we start the cycles again and the reason why tubish is this time of the year is that this is when the trees start coming out again and this is when things start appearing uh, even though we had uh, snow this last week that i think is going to change us and we're going to be seeing the, the world coming back to life again and i hope this is going to be the big change that we're going to see i think a bit like the trees coming out leo and that being even though it seems distant the knowledge that it is is what's kind of giving us that hope to keep going Absolutely. now I feel like we're we, we hit a kind of real low in terms of motivation and we talked in a previous podcast about optimism and how the levels of optimism despite the vaccine were still feeling quite difficult to get going the blossom on the trees the thought of the blossom of the trees keeps us a going but I also I've just joined a book club because um, I can't, I can't get my head round reading. It just seems too difficult, and so I thought I need to do something to motivate myself to read. And so I've joined this this book club, and I haven't ever done that before. But actually, it's got me reading again. Do you know what's got me reading at New Year? And I mean Jewish New Year, not uh, secular New Year. So this was back in September. Like you, Charlie, I was really frustrated because I love to read and I just hadn't been reading. So I just set myself a challenge that I would read 10 pages a day of both a factual book and a fiction book. And I would just prioritise that because I just thought you've got to prioritise what's important to you and reading is important to me. And pretty much I've managed to keep that up. That's, you know, for four or five months. But what's made a huge difference is that I've also banned screens from my bedroom. Um, Because when I was spending most of my time on screens was either first thing in the morning after I'd got up and made myself a cup of tea I'd go back to bed with my iPad and I could easily waste an hour on Twitter reading a newspaper now I go back to bed and I read 10 pages of my my factual book and then in the evening when I go to bed I don't take my screen with me I read 10 pages of my fiction book and it makes a big difference I'm really I'm really getting through the readings I have refused forever to take my phone never goes upstairs in the evening never 
it makes such a difference. And it makes a big difference. I don't have an iPad or a phone upstairs. When I'm travelling and I have it in the room, you just, for whatever reason, and you wake up, you just suddenly kind of one eye looking at it and you're like, no, you just don't sleep with it. If it's well away, it's, yeah. it's better for you, I think. Makes so much difference. Charlie, pull it out of her cold, dead hands. It will be that sort of thing. It's it's glued all the time, isn't it, Charlie? Yes, it is. I'll be the first to take it when they want to in there. Uh insert a chip in my uh, in my head I'll be like yeah I'll take it it's fine you'll be like that that woman in um, years and years or whatever it was who wanted to become bi human or I'm very happy with that whatever makes whatever makes it easier where do you sit where does tech sit with you Sean Um, I can't banish it from my room because I only have one room so I don't I can't make strict rules like that unfortunately (laughs) all of my all my devices I have to sleep in the same room as. Um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely, I've, I take fiction to bed and I, and I, you know, I put the phone, I set the alarm, put the phone to one side where it does wake me up in the morning, but I don't, I won't look at it again. I'll get my, I'll read my book and then I'll go to sleep. That's, that's, that's a really strict bedtime routine. I must say, I, I am actually really enjoying, as we talked about earlier, Clubhouse. I'm really enjoying it. It's maybe it's because I've always been an audio person. Maybe Do you participate a lot? Do you chat a lot? Or do you just lurk? Uh, I can't <laughs> lurk. I can't lurk. Um, uh, it, it will surprise you or it will surprise most of the listeners of this podcast who don't actually think I get many words in. Uh, but normally I communicate. But in this podcast, uh, I, I'm, I'm left to the, like the last last words i think you're always pulling the strings leo i think that's the uh that's, it. that's, pol- that's charlie's polite way of saying that i i'm the one who tells her, to, her and rebecca to stop talking sometimes the, the, the point is and the world has always been this is that there is only 24 hours in the day and there's always something that is now squeezing us out and we squeeze out things which actually looking back have damaged us in doing it you know we squeeze out time for doing this we squeeze out time for doing that and replace it by something and the FOMO experience and coming from a you know I'm in this business all day long the FOMO experience of fear of missing out of what's happening on Twitter and what's happening on uh, WhatsApp or what's happening on Facebook and I think it's even got worse you sit there any breaking news and literally wherever you are everybody's phone with the bbc it's like who got to it first but i also think there's something slightly judgmental leo about what you say because i I know i'm the one on who doesn't switch it off but part of it is the way of being able to run different bits of my life actually i think that it's not about not being able to switch off but actually it's a way that i can engage and not for me, it is a turn. It is turning off and talking to my friends and engaging in this social sphere. I think it depends on your position. I think it really depends on. I, I think I do think I think particularly as a mum who spends the whole week, especially during lockdown, with just me and the kids, and you actually don't see the the social media in a in an evening after work finishes late and actually talk having adult conversation for me, is a lifeline, actually. And I think that there'll be a lot lot of people out there that actually they spend a lot of their day one way or another in silence, especially at the moment. Even if there's a lot of noise, it can still be quite silent. And I think it's really... I don't think it's one way or the other. I think we have to be able to switch off from certain parts of our life and have boundaries. But also, are are you talking about two slightly different things? Charlie, are you talking about chatting to your mates on one platform or another, whether it's WhatsApp or whatever? Yeah, but also sometimes they're interlinked. I think 
it's um it's not always because i think there's the i think there's a kind of social chat like the literally social part of social media where you're chatting with your mates and that could be on facebook twitter whatsapp instagram whatever but then there is that and i love this phrase doom scrolling which i think is such an accurate reflection of and I've, I've done it myself, which is one of the reasons I'm trying to sit away from it. When there is a big news event going on and you're just scrolling through Twitter and everyone's talking about it and you're getting, you know, you get trapped down the rabbit holes of people who are insane arguing with each other and you, you start following these threads. And that is just can be very, very unproductive. Sure, I just think there very, isn't very a binary damaging. of one yeah, or the other. It's, it's not no, that no, no, just absolutely. because it's at night time or you're still on social you know, on on a device, that it's necessarily all negative. I think one thing I've really appreciated, Sean, has been your engagement with us. It's been very uh, easy to get you on our podcast and uh, wanting to be in partnership and to talk to us and be in conversation. I've really appreciated and hearing you speak even on other podcasts, I think is brilliant because I think a lot of people, politics feels very far away and that they can't be in conversation. And um, I know that on Limited, but also as part of this conversation, it's really appreciated, really appreciated to be in dialogue. And um, if people want to hear your voice more, want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Oh, my social medias are, um, my name is Sean Berry, which is spelt S-I-A-N-B-E-R-R-Y. And so I'm quite easy to find on Twitter I'm just Sean Berry um, I think I'm the same on Instagram I can't remember um, and on Facebook I'm Sean Berry we'll be looking for your nice pretty pictures on Instagram Sean yeah absolutely um, and my website is London. so it's all very it's all very similar kind of places to find me but yeah do come and do you know do, do engage and, and like I said you know I lo- I'm enjoying single topic long conversations much more than I'm enjoying the, the the peripatetic sort of quick fire nature of things like Twitter I'll be involved in a lot of hustings where it'll be a, more, a lot more quick fire so I'm getting in and doing these in-depth chats while I can basically thank you and Leo where can people find you now people can find me on Clubhouse uh, on various different channels in Clubhouse talking about streaming talking about uh, various different other areas and they can also find me on Twitter as WFC Kigo and Rebecca. I'm on Twitter at at R Singerman or at Kingston Lib And they can see you in your garden, can't they, Rebecca, on Instagram? On Instagram, they can see me in my garden. And I did do a Bernie meme. Can I just say, I did do a Bernie meme the day it snowed and put him in my garden. And if anybody wants to find me, they can find me on Twitter as Rab Charlie or anywhere all over their liberal Judaism social media platforms on Facebook as Charlie Beginsky. And I am also on Clubhouse. So come and listen to all of our conversations that are happening on there it's been such a delight to be with all of you as usual and i look forward to the next time thank you sean for joining us it's been great to talk to you goodbye 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 goodbye